welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 25 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We provide new adventures for your ears every other Thursday. My name is Patrick. This is King Scott here. And I don't know how you made that creepy, but it just sounded creepy. (laughs) Hey, you might be listening to us for the first or second time. Scott, we have a ton of new listeners over the last week or two. It's amazing. Still, every time that you tell me how many downloads we have... I still can't get over the fact that people listen to us, that we aren't just doing this just for the two of us, and that's it. So, yes, you, new listener, you, in your car, or in your house, or at work, no one else, just you. Thanks for joining. (laughs) Speaking of getting creepy, (laughs) we're a podcast that features new games, old games, and everything in between. We love to tap into the thoughts of the community through community polls and discussions that include not just Scott and I, but... All of you. The thing that's a lot of fun is whenever we get things from you, the listeners. So feel free to go to our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. Give us some ideas about what you've been playing. We would love to hear from you. Well, Scott, today we're going to talk some of our recent adventures. Our feature review is Carnegie. We're going to chat about respecting the game. And our Adventures on the Horizon feature, well, you didn't know this, it features a double dip, two beverage-themed Kickstarters. That's kind of becoming a trend here lately, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, yes, it is. And we're going to have a contest free to enter for anyone for a chance to win these two upcoming Kickstarter games. What's been going on, Scott? Well, right now I'm in the thick of rehearsals for our play. Next week, it becomes tech week, and that's when my wife doesn't see me anymore. It's down to the wire, so opening night is next Thursday. So that's been keeping me very busy and, unfortunately, keeping me away from playing a lot of games. Well, nevertheless, play's pretty exciting. Uh, Break a leg is a good thing in play speak, right? That it is. It's always a good thing to say break a leg. Good luck is not, not very well liked. And then there's the old superstition about the play that begins with an M that no one shall oh. utter behind stage. Mantum of the opera? I, I have no, no idea. No, I, no. You know what? I'll Google it. I'll Google it. I'm not going to try and pry it out of you. Did you see Dune Imperium's <laughs> getting an expansion, Rise of Ix. I've been seeing this is coming out. I've been wanting to get Dune Imperium back to the table, but I can't. I'm cramming all these lines into my head, so I have no time to play anything. I'm just falling into this dune fervor right now. Everything sand, everything spice. I mean, I'm looking forward to the movie. I've actually thought about reading the books. I mean, what was I thinking there? It just sounds like a lot of fun. I love the mechanic that they're going to put in this where you can thin out your deck. So you can get rid of some of your starting cards and everything. So that's going to really make it a little easier to call the cards out. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that affects the game. Because really, it's it's a great game. I truly, truly enjoy it. And seeing just a little tweak to some things there, it should make it very interesting. 
Well, Beyond the Rift, a couple episodes ago, we did our side quest on Beyond the Rift. We had a chance to talk with the designer, Nicholas Petraka. It funded Scott. It hit over 200% of what they were looking for. So I'm glad to see that folks are going to be able to get their copy. We had our meetup last week on Saturday at the Vault in Greensburg. Fantastic meetup. Bigger turnout than the first one. Jeez, ah, that, that was so much fun. There had to have been six or seven tables going, 25 people or so. Brett, the owner, got us pizza. So there's free pizza to go around on top of, oh my, if you, some of the games that were going. I mean, it was awesome walking around that room and just seeing a whole bunch of smiles, a whole bunch of people together, and just hit after hit on the table. <laughs> and as always, I managed to play No Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be my uh, my trend. Now, you know what? I, f- I find myself falling into this trap of like, okay, I'm going to uh, just teach things that I know, try and keep it simple because mm-hmm. I want to make sure that like people that are, are coming for the show, they, ha- you know, they have a chance to meet us. They have a chance to get in the game quickly, not too much downtime. So it's like, oh, I'll remain available for that. But then there's people playing Canvas and people playing uh, Takenu at the other tables. And I'm like, oh, I really want to play that. Mm, oh, I know. It was just the energy that was in the room, the number of people laughing and playing games. Whenever you think about a meetup and playing games with people, that's what you want to have. I understand you got a pretty sweet game mat in the mail. No game yet, but you got the mat. (laughs) I I am starting to worry I'm going to suffer from the curse of Kickstarter. Way back in. Battletech all over again. Yes. Way back on episode one, I talked about my Battletech Kickstarter that I'm still waiting on. And they're saying it could be the end of August. I don't know. I really honestly don't know. And, well, I backed Ankh. Ankh, Ankh, whatever the right pronunciation is from uh, Simon. And it was, I got the Wait, Mac. you mean whatever the right pronunciation is from Come On? Come on, Simon, whatever. Whatever. It was funny. Whenever I first saw that, I was thinking, oh, it's come on. That's perfect. It's like, come on, play some games. And then I heard everyone calling it Simon. And I'm like, oh, well, I'll call it Simon. Now we're going back to come on. But anyway, I digress. I got an awesome game, Matt, for Ankh, but uh, no game. So I'm still waiting (laughs) on the game. Uh, hopefully it's not far behind. I, I'm crossing my fingers because I've seen a lot of people on Facebook showing it. And I'm really hoping it's not far behind. But luckily, it hopefully will come after the play is over. Then I'll have time to dig in, learn it, and then teach you as quickly as possible. Now, I see that wow. your wife went to the Boyer factory today. Oh, yeah. Of all the things to include in the banter, uh, why the hell is that there? So, Boyer, what is Boyer? Uh, if you ever had a Clark bar or a Mallow, uh, we know. We know exactly what it is, but anybody oh, yeah. else would be like the Boyer factory. Mallow cup is like the redheaded stepchild of the Reese's cup. <laughs> Remember going trick-or-treating and you'd separate all your cup candies and you'd be like, oh, sweet Reese's. Oh, crap, a Mallow cup. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sweet Reese's. Oh, crap, a Mallow cup. <laughs> Reese's has the peanut butter on the inside, which as we found out in speaking with the Theurgy folks, they didn't know what that was yeah. over in England. So, those of you other overseas, it is a peanut butter cup with uh, or it's a chocolate cup with peanut butter on the inside it's wonderful it's god's gift to candy <laughs> and then there's the mallow cup which is a marshmallow inside of the chocolate it's it's fine it's delicious but it is not the reese's cup it's everything it the reese's cup is everything that the mallow cup wishes it could be i was gonna say uh, the mallow cup has the secret weapon though 
It what? has coconut in it. I didn't know that. I thought it was just yeah. a marshmallow. No, there's marshmallow and some coconut in there. That's what makes it. And I hmm. am a coconut fiend. Well, like many of these chocolate factories they have there, you can get it on discount area. Like these ones didn't turn out quite right. <laughs> so they, she comes home with my daughter. They have this bag with four pounds of chocolate. <laughs> it's like, well, going to be a lot of chocolate in the coming weeks. <laughs> That's why I put that in the show notes. I was thrilled by it. Speaking of show notes, what is this overabundance of Ravensburger games? Did you get the uh, Fate of the Nostromo? No, I didn't. I had the Fate of the Nostromo and I had the Gargoyles Awakening. Both of them in my hand today while my wife was having a a tiny surgery done. And I put them both back. I didn't go Hmm. for it. And the thing about it was what I was thinking is, is this kind of like one of those times now where we're seeing a paradigm shift where the Ravensburger games like the fate of the Nostromo and Gargoyles Awakening, are those going to be like the sorry and monopoly of days gone by? Are these going to be the entry-level games that all grandmothers buy for their kids and stuff like that? And that's going to be something in the future now. That'd be nice. I doubt it. I doubt I don't think anything's ever going to replace the really simple, put like, sorry. I mean, there's one mechanic, which is, is sorry the one with the pop bubble? No, that's trouble. Okay, yeah, tr- trouble. It rhymes. No, nothing's going to replace games that are overly simple, I don't think, as like a gateway, something you can play with your five-year-old. But it is kind of nice to see some gamer games working their way into uh, into big box stores. And they have been for a while. And quite frankly, they're getting better and the selection's getting bigger. Mm-hmm. I like having the opportunity to buy them there. But I still will always try and go to the local brick-and-mortar game shops you have a little more fun there. You get the banter with the people in the shop. You t- walk up to somebody in Target and say, so what would you think of this game here? And they look at you like you have a elbow growing out of your forehead. So, yeah, nothing hopefully will ever replace the brick-and-mortar shops. Well, I think people listening are listening to hear about some of the things that we've been up to lately. You had your, what was that, like your fraternity meetup last weekend? And I understand you play a lot of Euchre when you do that. Now, here's a secret for you, Scott. I've never played Euchre, so tell me a little bit about it. Euchre. Now, here we go. For anyone that's new listening to us, we like every now and then to jump in the Wayback Machine and go back to some of the older games. I guarantee this will be the oldest game we ever talk about on this show. Euchre was designed in 1848. So we're talking (laughs) about a game over 150 years old here. It's a game that you play with a normal deck of cards. It's 24 cards. You take everything from the nine of each suit up to the ace. You shuffle it up, and it's just a very quick trick-taking game. When you deal out five cards to each player, you flip over a card. That card could be Trump. What do you mean by could be? Well, what happens is whenever you flip over the card, it will go to the person next to the dealer. They can tell the dealer to pick up that card. If they pick up that card, that card goes in their hand. So everyone knows that the dealer has a trump card or a wild card for a better wording there. What if he doesn't tell the dealer to pick it up? Well, it goes to the next person. Next person has a chance to do that. Goes around the next person. Next person has a chance to do it. Goes all the way back around to the dealer. And depending on how you play it, it can either be the dealer. Well, what will happen then is the dealer will flip over the card. Then it'll go to the person next to the dealer. 
they get a chance to say, I want diamonds to be Trump. If they don't say anything, it goes all the way around again. And if it gets back to the dealer, there's two ways of playing it. One, you can make the dealer, they have to decide what Trump is going to be. Or you just take in the cards, shuffle them up and pass them on to the next person. You just skip that whole round there. But you're playing, taking tricks and you play as teams. So you're playing teams diagonal across from each other. The cards are in order as far as ace is the highest card, nine is the lowest card. The only difference there is the jack of whatever suit was chosen as Trump is the highest card period in the deck. The jack of the same color, but the opposite suit is the second highest card in the deck. And then I'll go ace, king, queen, 10, nine. You go around and you just play five rounds playing around there with the five cards you have in your hand. If you take three tricks, you get a point. If you take all five tricks, you get two points. If you call what Trump is going to be and you don't get at least three tricks, the other team dukes you. I don't know what the exact uh, terminology <laughs> is, but basically they called up and said, you know what? You didn't have enough cards. You went out on a ledge. We're going to get two points now for not picking Trump and we beat you at your own game. Do you find that the team dynamic is what makes the game particularly exciting, especially oh, when yes. you're playing with you know, your brothers or the friends and whatnot. My dad used to play a lot of bridge and understand that a lot of the, the difficulty, the challenge in bridge is being able to sort of uh, synergize, connect mm -hmm. with your teammate in a level that – can you talk to your teammate in Yuga? No, no. You cannot okay, say there anything. you go. You got to just kind of like read their signals. That's That can make for a really deep experience. Yeah. I mean, easily, I probably played – Eight, nine hours of Euchre over the weekend. <laughs> Good Lord. It's gotten to the point now where it's muscle memory. We don't even really look at the cards. We just know what to throw, when to throw it, and it just plays itself almost anymore. I told you, we have all these new listeners. We really need to make sure that we're hitting the big titles this week. And you're like, I'm going to talk about a trick-taking card game from 1848. Yeah, <laughs> I that's it. I played for nine hours. But uh, you no. know what? Some of those games are the best. It, yes, this is easily one of my all-time favorite games. If anybody, even I hear it somewhere in the wind, someone saying "Euchre," I'm in. I mean, I just like <laughs> go right over to them. Let's play. So I see on your list here, you had a chance of playing Web of Spies. Yes, I did. Do you remember this game? Do you remember that name? I most certainly do. I'm sorry you caught me in mid-coffee drink. Ooh. Web of Spies is self-published by Cole Medeiros and released in 2014. I hadn't heard of this game until our very own episode 8 when adventurer Bill submitted his take on it. And I heard what he had to say and I was like, oh, yep, buying this. Deck building with a board? I am in. Okay, so what's going on in a game of Web of Spies? You can go back and listen to Bill give a much better presentation on how to play this game, but this is my quick and dirty. Everyone's going to start the game with five meeples on a world map board, and the goal is to have the most left when someone is eliminated. So it's not like, oh, you're eliminated, you're out, you have to sit and wait. Nope, that's when the game ends, or it goes to a sudden death if there's a tie. You have a five-card hand from your starting deck of 10. And you're going to move these cards to move about the world map, acquire new cards, sabotage an opponent, or attack. Now, the movement's simple. 
You just discard a card to move one space. Sometimes you might have a vehicle. Like everybody starts with a car and it lets you move twice. But amongst those cards that you can buy from the market, you might find a speedboat, a plane, you know, things that, uh, (laughs) you know, you would think like, oh, I could picture James Bond movies in my mind. (laughs) I picture Austin Powers. You can just hear the uh, (laughs) Spy Hunter video game music in the background. No, I, I see Dr. Evil going... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my new submarine lair. With the pinky up. Okay, so we go over movement. Acquire, that's basically spending cards to get a new card. The way they make the market interactive for the players, though, Scott, this is awesome. You've got the continents of the world on the map, and each one, like America is one, and then South America is two, and Europe's three, and then each uh, each of these continents has a region, one, two, three, four, five, and six. You just roll two dice. The black die is going to say what continent, the white die is going to say what region of that continent. So, if on my turn, I buy a submachine gun from, we'll say it's in eastern United States, and I roll the dice, and it says, okay, then it's going to be in Australia, region four. What I do is I put a little marker, uh, which is a, a, a D6, but it's basically just got a symbol for that item in the market. I take that die and I put it in Australia in region six. And all that means is that the item in that slot in the market, there's only two face up cards, one face down, but that face up card, you can only acquire it if you're in Australia in region six. Now, inevitably, somebody's going to acquire it at the end of their turn. They'll re-roll the dice. The item will become available in a different region, hopefully close to where you are. So that's how you acquire things. Sabotaging happens when someone else does something. So remember I said you can move faster with a car? Mm-hmm. Well, you run the risk of somebody else having something like, say, a car bomb, oh, which <laughs> which Mr. Braun clearly stated makes for a very thematic, very, very fun <laughs> you've got that card in your hand and and nobody uses a car and you're like oh man i'm gonna have to go through my turn and i didn't get to use my car bomb and that might happen once or twice but then finally it's like oh you used a car bam you fling the car down and sometimes people don't even know that you had it because you might have whenever you're acquiring a card from the market you might have opted for a face down card from the deck so you might be loaded with all kinds of sabotage cards that people don't even know if i see that you bought a car bomb i might not want to use my car to move make sense mm-hmm. so attacking is pretty simple you have your meeple in the same space as their meeple you play an attack card that has uh, a number of three different symbols what's kind of cool here is your opponent needs to play a card with a matching symbol to defend and if their card has another symbol then you as the attacker now the onus is on you you have to discard a card to defend and, and basically return fire so like if i attack you and you defend it your card has a shield and a gun and the target symbol well, now I need to play another card that has one of those symbols, or you hit me back, and we can go back and forth that way for a while. It's it's pretty sweet. Winner of the combat kills off the meeple from the other player. All right. Okay. All in all, this is a very solid, very interactive deck building game that incorporates a board really, really well. It's everything that I was hoping that it would be. It is staying in the collection. Bill, great. Uh, I would call it a hidden gem, a great hidden gem of a game. Well, that sounds excellent. I, I would definitely like to give that a try sometime whenever we get together again. The espionage games, they get so much into the sneaking around and being careful about hidden things. movement. Yeah, this seems really, like you said, it just takes and makes it a fun James Bond kind of experience. 
Maybe a good way to relate it uh, would be a game like Clank, where instead of like you have a timer of get in and out of a dungeon and try and score points that way, instead you've got five people on the board and you're trying to kill each other. Oh. <laughs> and you have s somewhat limited access to the market depending on your location. So in that way, the game forces you to interact with each other. If there's something in the market that I really, really want, I might not want to go into Europe because Dawn's got all kinds of things in Europe, but I really want that card. So maybe I'll sneak one guy up there and try and grab it and hope that Dawn doesn't try and kill me, for example, or hope that I draw enough defensive cards to be able to interact with him. So that sounds really good. Now, whenever I listen to you talking about this, is it easy to learn? I mean, is there a lot of meat on this or is it just really a, a light game with a lot of mechanics in it? Sort of two questions in one. Is it easy to learn and is there a lot of meat in the game? Is it easy to learn? Yes. It's uh, First of all, it's not a big rule book. So if you have no familiarity with a deck builder, you're still not going to have that difficult a time getting through it. I think the rule book was like four or five pages. There's just not that much to it. If you are familiar with the deck builder, if you've played Clank, which most people have it, you know, most gamer gamers will say, I would imagine have played Clank at this point, you're going to be like half a turn in. You're going to be like, okay, I know exactly what I'm doing. And that is where the strategy comes from. This is one of those games where it's simple enough. Like there, it's so easy that it's complex because of your interactive. You know, the, the, the rule set that you're given is not difficult to comprehend. It's how you're going to interact with the other players in that rule set mm -hmm. uh, that makes it challenging. Okay, I know that in our four-player game, my goal is to have the most meeples left when someone dies. So do I want to be the person that, starts picking on people. How am I going to make my alliances happen? Am I going to be buying defensive cards? There's a ton of strategy and a ton of strategy revolving around what cards are available in the market. Which ones are available that you can actually get? What's there on your turn? What did other people buy? Matters. But the rules are easy. Yeah. It's nice whenever you find one of those games that is easy to learn, but there's just so much depth in the game there. That's that's fantastic. That does sound like a hidden gem, definitely. I saw you got a chance to play a game that we gave away earlier in our show's short run to this point, Taverns of Tiefenthal. What'd you think? Yes, I got a chance to play that. Uh, Mike was at our meetup, and he brought Taverns with him. This came out in 2019, and I'm going to do my best here because there's a lot of stuff going on in this game. It sounds simple whenever you think about it. You have a tavern. You need to get customers in. You need to get employees in there to take care of everyone. Sounds simple enough. There sure. is so much going on in this game as far as there's a deck building aspect of this game. So whenever you're going around here, whenever you're taking your turns, you're building your deck, you're adding customers into your deck, you're adding different employees into your deck. There's all sorts of things you can add into this deck to help you along here. You want to get royals into your deck. There's also a dice drafting part of this game where you roll dice and then you mm -hmm. take a die, you pass it around to the next person, they take a die and on and on and on to go around. So there's that part that goes into it as well. And really, the whole idea of this game is you want to try and get the highest point score. But you do that by getting the employees in there, making sure that there's beer and food for the people that come in. You want to get the people to come in so they will pay you money. You want to get their mm -hmm. signatures as they come into the tavern to give you more points on another board. There's a lot in this. So I was probably three quarters of the way through the game until it just 
click hit me and I was mm-hmm. able to really get into it and start playing it. But it's one that I don't feel that there's much player interaction. It's almost like everyone's playing their own game. The only thing that's mm-hmm. really in interaction is the dice drafting. But still, I mean, you could figure some way around that to play it solo. Uh, because I actually even brought it up to Mike whether or not there were solo rules for this because it felt very much like this could be played on your own. It is an interesting game. It is a fun game. It's one of those ones that you would probably play every month. You would want to get it out, play it, and then you're kind of like, okay, I had my fill. Let's put it away. And whenever someone brings it up, hey, let's play Taverns again. Yeah, let's play it. It is a deep game. There's a lot of strategy going on in this, a lot of moving parts in this. But uh, overall, you put your work into it and figure out how to play it. It's a very rewarding experience. Well, let me ask you this. You mentioned that there's some some dice drafting in the game. And any time that I hear dice, I mean, you think, uh-oh, you know, how big is the luck factor? Did you think that there was a lot of luck in this game? Did you have a lot of agency over your performance? Did your decisions matter? Whenever you're getting the guests to come into your into your tavern, they have dice number on there that w- you will be able to activate those die in, during that turn there to do actions. So if you go through the whole idea there and thinking, well, threes and fours have better chance of coming up. So I'm going to buy everything with threes and fours and get those Mm -hmm. customers come into my tavern. So that there is pretty much the only luck, but you can mitigate it with what you buy. The luck factor is really the dice, whatever you roll, that's what you're playing with. But still, you have a way of mitigating that chance factor by buying certain guests to come into your tavern. So how long did the uh, did the game take? This was a learning game, and I know Mike was going back and forth through the rules, trying to refresh his memory as well, too. But mm-hmm. I would say it took an hour and a half for three players there for learning and to play the game. Oh, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. It still gave you a nice experience playing it. I know Taverns comes with, in the box, comes with several different modules that you can incorporate. So you'd mentioned that it can feel like a, like a multiplayer solitaire at times. Did Mike show you that, like, oh, you can incorporate this, you can incorporate that? Like, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can make the game different. Yeah, I, we didn't get a chance to go into a lot of that stuff. Whenever you open it up and you look at the amount of stuff that is in that box, <laughs> I, it, it is overwhelming whenever you first get intimidating. that out. Yeah, it, it definitely is. But whenever you get everything out, you have to build your bar and put in your certain tables and everything. So it's kind of like you're building a puzzle. But yeah, it was a nice game. I want to revisit it, but it's not going to be on my speed dial. Okay. It, it didn't blow you away on the first play, but you're intrigued. Yes, yes. Very much Good so. Good assessment. Yeah. Hey, that's a lot of games. Some of the best games do that to us. Fantastic Taverns of Tiefenthal. I see here as well, you went back to another game that's a little bit older that we hear an awful lot of. You got a game of Wingspan in. Yeah, you know what? I was looking back through our our episodes. I put all the little images on our recent episodes on the website, and I realized we have not talked about Wingspan at all. I mean, we've hit some big ones, but I was like, eh, everybody knows everything there is to know about Wingspan. 2019, Elizabeth Hargrave, Stonemeyer Games, you guys know the drill. We've all played Wingspan, I'm sure, but I bring it up here because I had the chance to play it at the meetup. Okay, so 
couple of guys had a sealed copy that they just bought and they came into play. They came to the back room there at press where we were having everybody. I'm in between games and I saw this. So I was like, hey, I can teach you guys that. And a good friend of the show, Jimmy, he joined us and our game took flight. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes, yes. Hey, way to go with the dad jokes. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do a super quick overview of Wingspan. I don't need to teach this to anyone. You have your own player tableau with the option to play a bird or three different uh, areas. Uh, we'll say a habitat that you can play a bird, the forest, the fields, or the wetlands. On your turn, you have the option of playing a bird into one of these three habitats or activating one of these habitats. And that's as simple as putting a cube in the open slot. So for example, in the wetlands, you have five different what, four, five, four different card slots for where you can place a bird card. So the first one that you play will be in the far left slot. The next one will go to the immediate right of that. If you're not playing a bird and you're instead activating the wetlands, what is the leftmost open slot that doesn't have a bird? It has a symbol. So activating the wetlands is going to draw you cards. The first slot says draw one card. The third slot says draw two cards. How do I get there? Well, I have to play two birds to cover the first two columns before I can activate the third slot every time that I activate the wetlands. I like to do this as like taking the cube and just tap, 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 tap. So I'll set it down in that open slot and I'll be like, okay, I get to draw two. And then I place it on the bird that's to the left of it. And maybe it has an activated ability. Maybe it doesn't. And then I place it on the bird next to that. And that one does have an activated ability. It says, hey, everybody get a vertebrate. And then I place it to the left of that. And well, there's nothing left. So my turn is over. I use my activation cube. Play continues. Uh, there's end of round scoring. Uh, you start the game, your first round, you're going to have eight activations. And then one of those cubes is going to go away to the, the end of round scoring tile that is going to vary every game. And eventually, after four rounds, you're going to tally up your points based on the birds that you've played, the eggs on your cards, how you've done on your objectives, plus your secret objective cards that you got at the very beginning of the game. That's Wingspan. I don't think I've ever played Wingspan and been let down. It is just a solid experience every time. I bring it up here, Scott, because I responded to a Facebook post about naming an overrated game. <laughs> Ooh, I, I hear something bad coming here from this now. Yes, my response was wingspan. Now, never mind that overrated. I'll say this right now. Overrated is a subjective term. Anybody could name any game. And if it's overrated in their mind, then that's fine. It's, it's overrated. What, what is even what's an appropriate rating for any given game? Who knows? I got dragged through the mud oh. <laughs> per se. Yeah, I think it's a little overrated. Look, the game is awesome, but it's not without flaw. So I wanted to bring up some of the things that I was like, ah, you know what? Wingspan could be better because, because there's people that are like, it won eight of the 16 different awards on Board Game Geek. And I'm like, well, okay. I'm not saying it's bad. Right. I'm sorry. There's just no interaction from player to player. There are very few cards that are going to do anything to interact with the other people. Maybe there's a group hug card whenever this is activated. Everybody gets something. We actually had a couple of those in our game. You play your turn, and then you watch everyone else take theirs. Sometimes someone will do something that gives you something, but that's, that's it. Uh, it's definitely on the multiplayer solitaire end of the spectrum. Secondly... I feel like I've played games where my opening hand had a two-card combo that put me miles ahead within the first half of the first round. And other times, my hand might have good cards, but it just doesn't have any, like, clutch engine synergies, right? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying. You've seen games like oh, that, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Third, there comes a point in the game around round three where you've built your engine, and you know what the best play is to do every single turn? 
run your engine. Yep, just keep on running that engine. And finally, as eggs count for points, the last round typically sees players spamming the make egg action. You know, it's it's not without it's still a great game. Okay, <laughs> don't need the hate mail, right? Um, in my post, I pointed these things out and I suggested all these factors that I think make the game stand out maybe a little bit more than it should. Look at the production of this game. It raised the bar oh, yeah. for board game production. You have all these different colors of eggs. The art is top of the line. The game comes with a dice tower. The rule book, for the love of God, has a glossy finish mm-hmm. on it. I can't help but wonder if it would have been oh so slightly less popular if it had egg tokens or egg chits. If it had decent art, but not, you know, published book quality art. Right. All that said, it's a highly rated game for a good reason. I actually just picked up the European expansion for it. It adds a ton of new bird cards. Mm -hmm. It adds several different objectives for the end of the game. There's birds that have end of round triggers now. So some of them will say at the end of round do X. Yeah, yeah. It increases the interactivity ever so slightly in the game. There are a lot more birds that will have some interactivity from player to player, which is one of the things that I thought the base game uh, could use, could, could have that little injection into it. If for whatever reason, listeners, adventurers, if you haven't played it, get out there and do so. But don't play with an engineer like Ben, who (laughs) Ben and Brendan were the two guys that had the game, and Ben is an engineer. You know what? It just so happened that I think every game I played, with the exception of one, Ben was a part of, and every single one of those games, Ben won. So, Ben, I'm not playing games with you anymore. Oh, some good games we played lately. Is it? Is it really? Could it be? It's the top 100. Yes! <laughs> Scott, we always like to start with our top 10 trends. We have a change. Star Wars Rebellion, which, as you remember, I told you we were going to review that by episode 20, and we didn't. No. So you you ran, but you did not hide. You can keep running. You cannot hide. (laughs) Star Wars Rebellion is coming. It just popped up to number eight through the ages. A new story of civilization at number nine. New highest peaks. Dune Imperium is at number 42. Top 50. That thing is Clank Legacy. 45. Lost Ruins of Arnak. 60. Eclipse Second Dawn keeps climbing. It's at 74. And the Isle of Cats, which is now in target, is number 97. Falling Stars, Power Grid, down a couple spots to 46, and good old Robinson Crusoe Adventure on the Cursed Island is down to 62. We have a birthday. This one you're going to know for Scythe. How many years do you think, Scott? Five years. Yep. Five years for Scythe. All right. Can we get on with the review? Uh, Yeah. Let's get on with the review. Uh, What is it again? Oh, today we're going to have a look at the recent Kickstarter success that you can late pledge to now, Carnegie. Oh, 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 that one. Yeah. Hey, Patrick, um, why don't you do the walkthrough on this one? Oh, you're going to pin me with this uh, one? I'm generously giving it to you. Thanks. Before I start, do you call it Carnegie or Carnegie? Uh, I, I never really thought about it. I'm going to Carnegie. Really? I've always gone with Carnegie. Carnegie. I don't know. I don't pay attention. Uh, hey. Well, we're from around here. That's why we're, we're Pittsburghers. I feel like if we call it Carnegie, it's Carnegie. Yeah, well, we're going to Carnegie. But you call it Carnegie. Oh. I don't know. I, you got it in my head. You're in my head, Patrick.
Designed by Xavier George and available for late pledge from Quinted Games, Carnegie is a game that challenges one to four players to develop the most prestigious company by scoring the most points through 20 rounds, or roughly two hours of gameplay. Let's start off this walkthrough with your player board. This board represents your office building and the various departments within. Each player starts with the same departments to begin the game. Each player has a number of workers to allocate to these departments as they see fit before the first round begins. Now each of these departments fall into one of the game's four main action categories, HR, Construction, Research, and Management. The primary engine for a game of Carnegie is the timeline. Think of this as a grid with those four action categories, as well as regions listed to the right of each. When it's player's turn, they'll choose one of the four actions on the timeline and slide its marker in its row one space to the right. So let's use management for an example here. The management marker will slide one space to the right, and that's where it's typically going to have the name of a region, north, east, south, or west. What this means is that in turn order, players may opt to take income from the region depicted and then activate departments of that type. In this case, management. When activating your departments, the strength of the department depends on the number of workers within. So my management department that will allow me to collect extra income gives three extra dollars per worker, so it's beneficial to have more there. Obviously, much of the gameplay lies in the fact that you have a limited amount of workers. If your management departments are fully staffed, well, then you're probably lacking in others. Let's go back to that regional income that I mentioned. When an action is selected, and there's a corresponding region for income, that means that each player can return workers from that specific region to collect income. I just want to give you a sense of the game, so put simply, workers will enter the various regions from your main office. Some of the departments that they were in dictate that you can place them into regions. This is typically beneficial, and it definitely introduces a timing element to Carnegie. See, once those workers are on the main board, they don't come back until an action is selected that has a region listed on it. You can purposefully take actions that don't benefit your opponent, or you can intentionally allocate several workers to a region that's going to be activated soon. An oversimplified idea of what the other departments do? Well, HR will move your workers around your main office building. Construction allows you to place buildings into cities on the main board. And research and development puts you in position to have better gains when you take income. The aforementioned management department will allow you to send workers on missions in order to gain additional funds or even unlock new departments to add to your office building, providing you with not only points, but also asymmetric actions and abilities that only you can perform for the remainder of the game. There are many ways to score points in Carnegie, but the most influential is through making donations. The game has 20 point-scoring donation slots that players might choose from. For example, one donation spot offers two points for each industry building you've built. Another might offer two points for each R&D development that you've added to your main office. There's a ton of games surrounding the donations as they get incrementally more expensive, plus only one player can occupy each of the donation spots. How do we make a donation? Well, simple. The timeline offers an action, and when you slide your action marker one space to the right, there will be a region. But sometimes, instead of a region, there's a donation symbol. This means that instead of taking income from a region on the map, players instead have the chance to make a donation. Now, there is a lot more to Carnegie that I went over in this overview. For example, income is tied directly to not only the buildings that you've constructed, but also your position on that region's transportation track, which is advanced through R&D actions. 
There's an end game scoring based on linked cities at the end of the game. There's also a very strategic method of determining which types of buildings you intend to construct. Nevertheless, I hope this walkthrough provides you with a good sense of how your game is going to play out. So, the heroes had a chance to put on a top hat and break out their wallets in this quest. Let's see how they fared as we give the 8-bit breakdown to Carnegie. Carnegie is inspired by the life of Andrew Carnegie, who was born in Scotland in 1835 and emigrated to the United States with his parents in 1848. Although Carnegie started his career as a telegraph operator, his role as a major player in the rise of the United States steel industry made him one of the richest men in the world and an icon of the American dream. Carnegie was also a benefactor and philanthropist. Upon his death in 1919, more than $350 million of his wealth was bequeathed to various foundations, with another $30 million going to various charities. His endowments created nearly 2,500 free public libraries that bear his name to this day, the Carnegie Libraries. Thank you very much for that walkthrough for this very, very complex game. We like to break things down here into an 8-bit breakdown of our main review game that we're doing for the episode. Bit number one, the art and components. What did you think of that? There's not much to go over. This game doesn't have much art. The box cover's phenomenal, uh, but we played it on Board Game Arena, so it makes it kind of hard to make a determination on the bits. I can't imagine they're going to be anything over the top or less than what we might expect. I mean, it's it's some some wood pieces. You have wooden mm -hmm. markers for the areas that you're building your locations in and the things that you're developing. You have meeples that are going to go into your departments, which are just tiles. Kickstarter shows. Basically, the game's comprised of cubes, tiles, and meeples. Uh, it offers a start player metal locomotive. I did see that. Uh, you could pledge you could get the metal locomotive for the, the start player token and a metal gear. You know that little timeline mm -hmm. where we're putting the, the gear on? They had a big metal gear that you could pledge to. I don't know that I would for this game. It seems kind of superfluous, but um, art and components uh, are what you would expect. There are some games that you buy because the art speaks to you, because the components are really tactile. They're, they're fun to, to hold and to clank in your hand or to push them across the board. This isn't one of them. This is one of those games similar to Beyond the Sun, where there's great gameplay, but as far as the exposure on the table is, it's not a very inviting game. You have to be a gamer to be drawn to this. If you're just mm -hmm. a casual gamer, you're going to look at that and just push that away with a 10-foot pole. Like, I don't want to even come near that game. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's great for gamers. They look at that, and mm -hmm. it, it does look like a great brain burner game, and it is. But as far as bringing new people into it, this is definitely not on that gateway gamer uh, scale anywhere oh, absolutely near not. at all our bit number two is theme what did you think of the theme theme and immersion i felt some theme here through the mechanics like managing an office building and sending workers i mean they said out on missions and that took me a minute but out on missions basically means putting them to work they're going to to the east coast the south etc does it put me into the time period of carnegie no 
this is a very mechanics forward game. I don't think that the folks that are going to be looking to pick up Carnegie are doing so for a cinematic romp. You know, it's definitely a mechanics game. It is a, I, I want to sit down and I want to use my brain. I know I normally, that's not me, but that's, that's who it's for. I want to sit down and want to, I want to think up what I'm going to do. And I want to think three turns ahead and try and pre-plan and make things happen that way. Uh, it's not a game that you're going to leave and tell the story about the workers that you had in uh, your R and D departments. Oh, and you sent them to the South and they came back with buckets of money. Theoretically, that's what's happening, but mm, no. What about you? What'd you think? I agree on that. I look at it being from the Pittsburgh area. There are things on there where the office buildings, the donations that he would uh, give to various charities, going out all over the country, sending out people to build the infrastructure of America. You can definitely see historical wise that fits in. But I never. Yeah, the donations is a main point scorer. You're right. I yeah. missed that one. That That is a, that's a mechanic bringing some theme to the surface. But I don't ever feel like I am playing as Andrew Carnegie and I'm giving out my money for the good of the general public. It's mm-hmm. just, I want to get points from this. That's all I want to do. Yes. It's a very mechanical game. It was an enjoyable experience though. Now here comes the tricky one. Bit yeah. number three, complexity. So there are a lot of interlocking mechanisms at work here. If you break this out with your gamer friends, it's still going to take a complete game for anyone to really get the hang of it. Maybe two games. The game centers around a timeline, which shows the departments that are going to activate and where players can collect their income from. And there is a lot to chew on on that timeline alone. Where does complexity come in? Well, when you collect income, you get the amount shown in the currently active region where the income is being activated per meeple returned to your home office. But wait, you also collect based on what you have uncovered on your income charts that slide out from underneath your office board. But how do I slide those out? Uh Haha, research. But wait a minute. (laughs) How do I uncover them? Ah, construction. How do I get movement? Activating HR. But if I do that, what activates on the timeline? Everything is interconnected. So you can see where there is a lot to take in here. You have to understand the implications of each of the different actions, uh, of each of the different areas where you have meeples and and why it's important to put something in the West versus the East this game, but you know maybe not next round or next game. You have the option to add new offices to your building. Let's add that in. Never mind that it's a complex game right then and there. They give you this ability to differentiate your your powers in the game, your abilities with other players by adding offices into your building. This introduces that asymmetry, but it comes at a cost. See on BGA, you can hover over each of the offices and you can determine exactly what it does. You just scroll your mouth. BGA Board Game Arena, um, where we played, geez, I think I've played this thing 30 times now. You hover over the building, and I don't have to now. I know what they do just by looking at them. You hover over it, and it just says, okay, as as long as you have an active worker here in your office building, all of your donations are going to be in increments of three instead of in increments of five. Okay, great. I I want that. In real life, I'm sure you're going to be spending a lot of time checking out a player aid. That okay, what's this one? Where do I see that symbol? You know, you're looking at the tile and then you look down at the at the page. What is it and what does that do? Do I want that right now? No. Nah. 20 seconds just passed, and there's 16 of those buildings. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, let me see the next one. You can't do that. So that's why I say your first playthrough, you should hardly bother to determine what each one does. Just take one and learn how the construction of the offices is actually achieved. Learn how you get your workers into them. And then as you play your second time, your third time, ideally with the same group, so everybody has more familiarity with those buildings, you start to, oh, okay, yeah, we're, we're starting to get this now. And then you could dive into the complexity that is not... There's a lot of offices. There's a lot of actions to choose from. There's where you can dive into the complexity is interacting with them and, and working with the mechanics that you've been given to have a successful game. Sometimes I look at it and I think it's too complex for its own good. But I can also look at it and appreciate, my God, what did these people do to sit down and plan this game? The the amount of time and playtesting that went through this game I can't even begin to imagine how they did this to balance this game out. There was so much going in. Like you said, one depends on the other action, depends on the other action, depends on the other action. Everything is completely intertwined in this game into one hulking ball of board game goodness. And, you know, we didn't even talk about things like how different cities can accept different building types, how you want to use research to move up that little uh, uh, transportation track in each of the regions. And you score points based on where you're at on that transportation track. And what you get from the region depends on where you're at on the transportation track. There is so much to sink your teeth into. And... Part of the joy of that is that you can play a game remarkably different. There are some things that you're going to have to do every game, every time you play. We got don't jump ahead here. We've got another bit for that coming up here. Thank you. So this next one is an interesting one because I don't think either of us actually looked at the rule book. So our bit number we did. four is the rule book. We may not have. I, I actually did. First of all, shout out to Ryan. Ryan taught me Carnegie. I was bored and I was like, oh, Carnegie's on BGA. So I just put up a post in the board game group. I was like, anybody want to teach me Carnegie? And this dude came along. And he was like, hey, I'd be glad to teach you. The rule book itself, though, I've looked at it on the Kickstarter. It's, it's I would say, only 20 pages. And I, I put only in quotes. Honestly, the main mechanic of the game, the timeline, it's not that it's not that hard to figure out. And that's where the rule book starts. So once you've grasped that, you can take everything in bite-sized pieces. It has a reference in the back uh, and even a small solo mode that's nestled amongst colorful pictures, examples, and the occasional quote from Mr. Carnegie himself. Well, the learning curve, let me go off of this from you, and you can go on to Ryan. As far as the learning curve goes, being on BGA, it is great being able to hover over things and see what they tell you to do. That is an amazing benefit to playing this online. But I really look at this as this is almost like chess, where you can go in, you can play this game, but if you make that first move and the other person makes a more optimal move, there's a good chance you're done for the game. It's so hard to play catch-up, in my opinion, there, whenever you're You think doing you that. can foul up early. Yeah, and it's it's mm -hmm. very tough to, to come back from that. So you really want to play a lot if you want to get good at it, and you really want to appreciate the game. What were your thoughts? Well, again, shout-out to Ryan taught the game to me beautifully. Uh, as I said, I just asked on a board game group, can anyone teach me? And he did. I approached the first game just trying to understand the mechanisms. He was very patient. It wasn't until my third or fourth game that I was actively trying to implement a strategy. 
it was a few games that I was just, you know what, I'm just going to click and see what happens. Click here, see what happens. What if I go this route, see what happens. And then finally it was like, all right, I can now, you know, I'm comfortable with how the game functions. Now I'm going to actually put together a strategy. This is one that if I showed Ben from the meetup how to play, I guarantee you halfway through the first game, he'd be like, well, I just uh, I just mastered it and I crushed you at it. <laughs> ben, I wasn't even playing against you. He'd be like, and I beat you. <laughs> now bit number six, do we want to replay it? Is there variability in the game? Let's start with variability. The timeline of when various regions are going to activate has overlays, so it's going to be different nearly every game. Other than that, you have a relatively static setup. I know you can get these expansion buildings that come with the Kickstarter. There's the 16 buildings on the on the developments, uh, what the offices. I keep saying buildings, the offices that you can develop. You can have some variability there with that expansion. Otherwise, it's the same 16 from game to game. I think the variability is found in the fact that you can play in different ways. You can play a construction-heavy game, a research-heavy game. You can try and link the cities. You can go big money, get extra workers, uh, fill out the office buildings. These are all things you can do in a game, but you can't do them all. You're going to do some combination of, of a few of these things. So I think that a lot of the variability comes in what you want to do when you sit down and play. Uh, what city am I going to be starting in? Which construction projects do I want to try and build? The housing, the commerce, the industry, the infrastructure. You want to do all four, but you can't. You've got to make a decision there. Which donations should I make? Those donations don't change from game to game, but there are a ton of them and you can't do them all. All of these variables, I think, lend themselves to replayability. There are a lot of games that have variables in the setup, right? We've seen games time after time. There's games where, oh, use different tiles or put mm -hmm. the tiles face down and then flip them up. Voila, variability. And they do that in an effort to make the game a bit more replayable. Interestingly enough, to me, Carnegie has managed to provide a ton of paths of victory from a static setup and has just as much, if not more, replayability than games that give you a much more variable setup. Does that make sense? You spoke that very eloquently. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, I agree with you wholeheartedly that this is very static. I mean, it's not one of those things you can really put things in and out of it to make the game different. I think mm -hmm. the enjoyment that you get with this game is how you play it and with whom you're playing it. Whenever you're playing with friends that are all pretty much on the same level and you all decide, yes. I'm going to do something crazy this time. I'm going to try and do everything with donations to medical research. I'm going to do everything with going down south on the uh, U.S. map. The variability mm -hmm. definitely comes in there, and I think that would also make it a lot more fun whenever you play with people who are on the same level and you all decide to do something you wouldn't normally do to win the game. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Bit number seven. This one here I'm always a little nervous to put out there, but number seven is the downsides of the game. Scott, I feel like I could intentionally play suboptimally and still finish with a decent score. Like it's very point saladish in that you can, you ain't going to win, but you're going to get points for doing stuff because at that timeline, certain things are going to activate. You're going to have some amount of money to be able to, to do some things like it does feel like a game where if you play perfect versus almost perfect, the perfect player will win. Mm -hmm. But the almost perfect player is not going to know necessarily where they went wrong. No, I understand that because there's so much going on. And like you said, so many things 
that you get points for, it's hard to pinpoint exactly where your game plan went wrong. Or right, mm-hmm. or or if uh, where your game plan went right. Yeah, I think you helped me clean that up a little bit. This game follows that timeline, which I think means that as you become more familiar with it, you're going to discover things that are more beneficial early and other things that yield a higher benefit when they're done late. So I think that there is a possibility for some scripting, not like Puerto Rico, like here's how you open up the game, because the timeline's variable. That's one of the only things that's variable. But you do know that like there's going to be four turns left. You can likely phase out some of the things that you may have wanted to do, like, okay, there's there's three turns left. I'm not going to be able to build. Or it's early in the game. We had our six free movement. I'm obviously not going to pick HR and start moving meeples around because I already did. Right. So there's a little bit of like some obvious beginning. It's not necessarily a a scripted opening, but some obvious gameplay early and late. Downsides on my part. If you make that suboptimal move, the first move out and start going two, three moves into the game. Well, we'll take an idea from Loki here, the TV show Loki that's been on. So you have the master timeline. That's the main thing. That's how you play. But you can play and you do that two turns in and you make a variant timeline and it's going to throw off your whole game. And if you don't get back to it quick enough, your game is going to go completely bonkers and you aren't going to know where you went wrong. There's so Mm -hmm. much here and it's hard to pinpoint and learn from your mistakes. I mean, you could say I should have not done that donation to human rights, I should have done it to this, but you don't really know because there's so much in this game that goes on with the points. You know what? I think I'll pile that on a little bit. I've played this game maybe 30 times now, enough to have owned my strategy. And honestly, I think I do decent each game. I still can't make up my mind if this is a strategic game or if it's tactical. That is, should I be making a, like long-term or short-term decisions? I, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. That might mean that Carnegie is a super variable, deep, branching, decision-based, rewarding strategy game, but it might also mean that this game's a mess. (laughs) I just (laughs) don't know. Well, hearing your eloquent way of putting that out there, let's go to bit number eight. Who's this game for and was it fun? Did you enjoy your, your plays of this game? I really did. I've played it as much or more than probably any other review game that we've done to this point, save maybe Beyond the Sun. It makes me feel clever. It's rewarding. When it's rewarding, it's really rewarding. It's obviously a different kind of fun than I'm going to have whenever I break out a game like Kemet or Forgotten Waters. The fun's in thinking tactically and trying to think strategically and seeing a plan pay off. It's a sit quiet and get that nice big grin. Let's talk a little bit about who this is for. You know that kid that would do your math homework for five bucks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's loving Carnegie. (laughs) You know Ben, the engineer that cleaned my clock at the meetup? His last name might be Carnegie. (laughs) (laughs) If your group likes uh, a a game where you're rewarded for strong play in the moment while also carefully anticipating the actions that other players are going to take, this is going to be an easy one to get to the table. Good game to relate it to maybe. I thought, you know what? Brass. Every action is important. The player order matters. What people are going to do next matters. That reminded me a little bit of Brass, and I think that's probably a good sign for how I'm going to feel about Carnegie in a year or two. What did you think? Well, was it fun? Yes. 
I enjoyed it. I'm still learning it. I haven't played it as many times as you have. I still had a good time playing it. Who's it for? This is definitely for the people who like the meaty Euro games. And it puts off people who do not. They're going to look at it and just kind of steer clear of that game. It's not going to be one of those games that are going to draw them in. It's definitely, I agree with you, it's definitely for people who love the meaty games, not for the people that don't, and it really kind of separates them. So you kind of have your own time there with your friends that like those kind of games. Yeah, I feel like if you tried to force someone who's not a big Euro player oh, hell to play no. a game of Carnegie or somebody <laughs> that doesn't care for Euros, it's it's going <laughs> to failure to launch. This is I going to turn them on Euros for the rest of their lives. But I am glad to hear that you thought it was fun. I thought it was a good game. And adventurers, I recommend you check out Carnegie. This one's a winner in my book. Most Maybe definitely. a mess, but a winner. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. Patrick, you brought it back to us, but I understand that there's a new part of the show here. Yes, indeed. Let's take it over to Archmage Andrew for our first installment of The Academy. Hi, guys. My name is Andrew Davidson with AsPromyAbility.com, and I love Gangs of New York. What is there not to love? With Martin Scorsese behind the helm, Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio giving stellar performances, and nine Oscar nominations from Best Director to Best Picture to Best Actor to Best Original Screenplay, I ask again, what is there not to love? Gangs of New York focuses on a period of New York City history during the American Civil War a time where immigrants from Italy, Germany, England, and most notably Ireland were coming to America in droves. During that time, an incredibly corrupt Democratic politician named William Tweed, also known as the Tiger of Tammany Hall, he used his power and money to rig elections and cause voter irregularities by winning the immigrants' support. Now, remember, this was before any form of official identification. Men would spend months growing out their beards, go vote, shave off a little bit, go vote again, shave off everything but the mustache and the chin, vote again, shave clean, completely baby faced, vote again. According to some historical documents, one man reported that he voted 17 times during the 1863 mayoral election. This, by the way, is also where we get no shave November from. Others would be harassed and beaten by immigrant gangs into voting for a particular set of politicians. Quite frankly, during the time of Tammany Hall, the whole city was an absolute mess. 1863 was a time before the socialism we know and understand today. The municipal police were fighting literally in the streets, the city police. Firefighting brigades were assembled like gangs full of rough and tumble tough guys loyal to their fire brigade. If a house caught fire and two separate fire brigades showed up, they would fight in the streets over which group would be allowed the pleasure of putting out the fire. Most of the time, while the hard-edged men fought it out in the streets, it was set to the backdrop of the building burning to the ground. The uh, natives, which is what you would call yourself if you were born in the United States, not to be confused with Native Americans, but the natives hated the immigrants, mainly the Irish. 
Nobody had any protection. As a result, they banded together in small groups or even what you might call significant-sized gangs. From a political standpoint, if you could win the favor of some of or all the immigrant gangs, you could control the vote. This is what the Tiger of Tammany Hall did to keep himself and his cronies right where they wanted to be, at the top of the food chain. In Tammany Hall, players assumed the role of politicians, trying to sway the immigrant vote your way. Every four rounds, each round representing a year, there is an election. The goal of the game is to procure the position of mayor as many times as possible. In short, Tammany Hall is an area influence game with a mild blind betting mechanic around the edges. However, thematically, Tammany Hall gives players the same wicked and corrupt feeling that politicians would have felt. There's a lot of strategic planning as you try to have board control, but when an election occurs, you still need to have the support of the four diverse immigrant populations, English, German, Italian, and Irish. However, should you win the coveted position of mayor of New York City, you're taxed with the job of handing out government positions to all your opponents, precinct chairman, deputy mayor, chief of police, and council president. These government positions give players a unique ability that you know they will immediately use against you. Unfortunately, being the mayor of New York City yields the player nothing but points. The cherry on top of the whipped cream on top of the cupcake that is Tammany Hall is that everything within the game is historically accurate. Even the board represents how New York City looked during the mentioned historical period. Tammany Hall is a game torn directly from the history books. The mechanics of new immigrants arriving to have mob bosses to controlling immigrant population influence. The mechanics, well, they serve the theme. And as any savvy board gamer will tell you, if a game can pull off the perfect marriage of mechanics and narrative, you have got yourself a winner. But seriously, go watch Kings of New York. Scott, our discussion this week is all about respecting the game. What do we mean by that? I was playing a game with Jeremy. You've met Jeremy, right? Yes, yes. Solid gamer. He he puts his mind behind the game. We're playing a game a few years ago. I don't even remember what we were playing. What I'll say Rising Sun. And I just kind of put a piece on the board, kind of nonchalantly. It was half on the line, half off, maybe knocked over, whatever the case was. He picked it up and said it appropriately. And he's like, come on, man, you got to respect the game. <laughs> and I couldn't, I couldn't convey that sarcasm in my post that I made for our discussion. People were like, wait, that sounds stern. I wouldn't even play with that guy. And I did. I had to backtrack and say, no, no, no. He, he, was, he said it in jest. You know, he was, he was being comical about it. But you know what? That always stuck with me. Respect the game. If I'm playing a game with mega credits, they're mega credits. It's not money anymore. Or if I'm playing a game with, uh, with oh, what were they in Grand Austria Hotel? They're crones, right? Yes. Well, then darn it. We're spending crones. Come on. Get, respect the game. They're crones. That's always stuck with me. So I put I put it at this community poll and I said, you know what, guys, I want to know what are your thoughts on how to respect the game? Now, we got dangerously close to a previous discussion about pet peeves. So I, I tried to steer people away from that. I don't want to hear about like, don't be on your phone. That's a bigger violation here. I'm looking at ways that you you treat the game that that helps dive into it, that helps bring the theme out, that helps people get immersed into the game. 
what are the ways that people respect the game? And I tasked you, I gave you a little job this past week of pulling out some of the responses that we had of what other people suggested. What'd you find? Well, coming from miniature game background, Fred said when playing a game with minis, like a dungeon crawler, if they're in combat or something, have them face each other. That's a huge thing there. If you're going to the point that you have miniatures playing and you're making it a cinematic type of event whenever you're playing this game, make it look cinematic. There's nothing better than whenever you see a dwarf facing off against a dragon, but then they're just thrown on a thing and they're facing different directions. Yeah, the dwarf's you looking that way. You want the dwarf <laughs> looking up at the dragon. You want him to look at death in the eyes. You want to see what's going to be happening there. It's something so simple. Whenever you have the miniatures, yeah, definitely respect the miniatures. You know, that was suggested. I don't know if you noticed, but that was Tiny Fred that put that one out there. Thanks, Tiny Fred. Good advice. And in fact, I've used this before to my advantage. When my brothers and I used to play Axis and Allies, I would always have like, so let's say I'm, I'm playing the Axis and the Germans are pressing on the Russian front. I would place the pieces down and their guns would be facing towards the Caucasus or Karelia or wherever I intended on attacking next. And eventually I was like, wait. <laughs> <laughs> and I would always have them pointing their guns inward back towards Germany or or better yet, if there's a, you know some British forces in one territory and some, some Russians in another and I intend on attacking the Russian forces – I'll have everything, all the tank barrels, everything will be pointing towards that British territory with the hope that maybe they beef that one up because mm -hmm. they think I'm going to go there and then I'll, ha-ha, go, uh, go down and attack the Russians in, in that other territory. Good stuff, though, Fred. It's not going to be thematic if y'all are pointing the guns at different areas or, or just placing the piece nonchalantly. What else you got, Scott? Well, Brett had another good one here, and this I, I really like this one. Don't roll the dice on the board. It's a magnitude nine for the pieces. And that is <laughs> oh, oh so true. <laughs> I mean, you throw those dice on that board and yes, things are going to go willy nilly every place on that board. So yes, roll them off on the side. Not saying you have to have a dice tower. You have to have a, a little dice tray to roll them in. Just roll them off on the side. Just of don't the board. be a heathen. Yes. <laughs> Nicole says, take an immersive game with a serious theme. Thinking of Tainted Grail here, one of your games. Oh, I Take like it, it seriously. Please refrain from using foul language and crude jokes. There are times for crude jokes. There are times for foul language. And sometimes you need to gauge your audience. Mm -hmm. And I used to work for a person that would, he used the F word like an artist uses oil paints. He used it in almost every single sentence he used. He used some fallow language. Oh, my goodness. And it always sounded out of place, and it just mm. made everyone just uncomfortable. So whenever you're playing an immersive game, don't make your opponents, or if you're playing a cooperative game, don't make your teammates uncomfortable with making crude jokes or anything. It's more yeah. respecting the game and respecting the other players. Right. And yet, there are games where, you know what, some language is okay. It's fine. Like, oh my goodness, when we had the, the 2021 Shogun Showdown, I've never heard such terrible, awful things said about other people. <laughs> but that's because of the group that we're playing with and that it's kind of a beer and pretzels romp of sure. a game. If you're playing something like when you're playing Carnegie, 
<laughs> you're not going to end up throwing out the language and, you know, like trying to make a hoot and a holler about it. It's like, no, that's a game like Tainted Grail. You're breaking the theme. We're trying to go across Avalon here and we're trying to discover the Holy Grail. And here's this guy. Well, use your imagination. <laughs> the number of times I know, at least I straighten it out. But mm-hmm. Rob says, keep the card stacked facing the same direction. Every card you draw should be facing the same way so you don't have to flip cards over to read them all the damn time. Hey, language. So There's an appropriate I, I, audience I for that sort of thing. <laughs> hey, Rob, Rob, I'm sorry. I couldn't redact <laughs> this in time. Respect the podcast, Rob. <laughs> I don't really look at it as that being that much of a problem, but it's one of those things that makes the experience that much better. Whenever you just pull up the card, you can read it, and it's all there ready to go and play. For me, this harkens back to the Magic the Gathering days because Mm. everybody plays in sleeves and everybody plays with the Dragon Shields or the Ultra Pros that are opaque on one side. And you play with an opaque side because if I have a card that's seen a little wear and tear, well, the problem is in tournament play, that's a marked card. I can tell Mm -hmm. when it's coming so I can get disqualified or or lose a game and be forced to replace that card if, if it's showing that wear and tear. So you play with an opaque sleeve so you can't tell. The problem is when you're shuffling these sleeves, most people will do a, a push shuffle where, it's, where you hold the deck in your hand and you split it in half. You take half the deck and you put them the long ends next to each other and you just push them into each other and they glide right in. It's perfect with those sleeves. Some people don't though and they learn really quick to do so. Uh, if you do a push shuffle going with the short ends, you're going to be pushing the bottom of the sleeve into mm. the open end on the top. And whenever you push, it just rips right down the seam oh. of the sleeve of that card. And you end up having to replace several sleeves. Uh, if you riffle shuffle and you go sleeve into sleeve side, oh my goodness, it's a disaster. Keep the cards going the same way when you can. There's some games it doesn't matter. I get it. But yeah, Rob, good suggestion. Next one we have here is Jennifer. Organize the pieces. I hate it when someone just has a big pile of resources and you're supposed to dig through them to find what you need. That is, yeah, yeah, that's verging right, towing the line of pet peeves. Yeah, make the game easier to play. Put everything in one spot. Respect the game. Get everything where it belongs. (laughs) That's what we need to do when it releases. Hashtag respect the game. We don't do that. (laughs) Mark has a little bit of a longer one. It's usually more fun when you allow the flavor of the design game to soak in. Using terms, referring to the environment, playing along with the theme, using pieces as designed. It can really enhance the whole experience. I love when the group gets into it and really dislike when someone always speaks in general terms and wants to bottom line everything and cut through the common mechanics. It's practical, but it's boring. That sums it all up. That's exactly what I was looking for. Mark. Move to the front of the class. He gets the award of the day. He said exactly what, what I was trying to convey. There were a lot of people. One of the, and I'll get into some of the things that I said, but uh, Mark, Mark hammered it. You're going to have a better experience. You're going to have more fun whenever you're putting yourself into the game. I always talk about uh, trading. Whenever we trade in Twilight Imperium, one of our things is you can't just say, I'll give you two ships for this, or I, I'll give you my votes for that. No, you have to say the Hassan would like to consult with... I don't know, the Mentech Coalition. You have to put yourself into that theme. You know what? Talk in a voice if a game calls for it. It makes it more fun. It gives you a better experience whenever you do that. No, this is a good one here. 
PJ says, don't toss an opponent's pieces off the board once you've defeated them. Let them remove them themselves unless they can't reach. That's a, a big one. That's that's one I know that a lot of time miniature players don't do that. They will let someone else because the last thing they want to do is they don't want to break one, uh, their opponent's miniatures. If you're just playing with meeples or something, yeah, it's it's easy to do that and just grab it and it's like, here you go. And in your mind, you're just kind of tossing it to them to be helpful. But that could be construed in so many different ways that you're just offhandedly throwing something at them saying, you suck. And you're not (laughs) trying to do that. So it's it's a definite fine line you have to watch on that. I snuck this one in because it reminded me of an old friend. We'll, We'll call him Bill. I used to play uh, magic with Bill, and one of the things that Bill would do is, let's say that he lightning bolted your creature. He would take the lightning bolt card that he was using, and he would slide it underneath your card. And he wouldn't, like, flip it way up in the air or anything, but he'd just give it the tiniest little flick so that your card would, like, move or flip over or something. He'd be like, I'm going to go ahead and lightning bolt him. And it, it was exactly what you said. It was like... Get this crap out of here. I'm better. It was magic is a tense game anyway, and it's a competitive game anyway, and it's usually a tournament that you pay for to play in. And there's this dude that's like flipping your card. Oh, when uh, when I read what PJ said, I can't imagine someone's actually taking the pieces and tossing them off the board. But that is that's a good suggestion for etiquette. If if you do if if you sink their battleship, let them remove their battleship from the board. Exactly. Exactly. Scott, how do you respect the game? I think the biggest thing there is not really respecting the game. It's more along the lines of I look at it as respecting your opponent. That encompasses the whole thing. I mean, if you respect your opponent playing the game, you're respecting the game. You're respecting what you're trying to do. You're trying to have a good time with another person playing a game. So if you have respect for them, you both should have respect for that game while you're playing it. Absolutely. And how do you respect the game, Patrick? Play to win. And I can modify this because I put that in the Facebook post, play to win. And I had a whole bunch of folks saying, winning is not the most important thing. Having fun is the most important thing. And I agree. But I'll modify it and say, play your best and take it seriously. If you are eliminated, like there's no way I can win this game and there's a couple rounds to go, don't become the agent of chaos. Don't decide to attack the guy that attacked you last weekend just cause. Don't build the thing that's funny like, oh, nobody should be building that right now. But look, you did. Ha ha. The decisions that you make, even though you're eliminated – The two people that are jockeying for the win, they have some expectation of what you're going to do. Okay, on his turn, he's going to build the the top of that pyramid, which is going to score this region. So I'm going to get over into that region so that whenever he builds that top of that pyramid, which is the optimal play for him right now, that's going to score me two points. And maybe that'll let me catch up to Steven. And then on that guy's turn, he's like, I'm going to send all of the poppers to the tavern. (laughs) Ha ha. Like you said, a lot of it has to do with respecting the other players. They go hand in hand together, definitely. It's come to that time in the show where we look at things and we wonder, what's coming over that hillside here? It's time for Adventures on the Horizon. Now, I understand that you had a chance to play a couple games while I'm busy playing around on stage with a six-foot invisible rabbit. So, (laughs) first game that you got a chance to play was Soda Smugglers. So, tell me about Soda Smugglers. 
Absolutely. Soda Smugglers. This one's coming out on Kickstarter August 10th, which at the time this episode comes out was two days ago. This is designed by Reiner Knizia and published wait, wait, by... Wait, 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 wait. You mean the Reiner Knizia? Yes, the Reiner Knizia. has got a game coming out from Bitewing Games, a three to eight player game that plays in about 20 minutes. Lawmakers are cracking down on soda. <laughs> <laughs> and tight regulation has made way for lucrative smuggling. One bottle per person is the new law. Thus, bribes, suitcase inspections, and arrests are on the agenda. Only one will emerge, the soda kingpin. So they're kind of playing on a prohibition theme here, but keeping it soda. Scott, this game is kind of like Sheriff of Nottingham Light. All right, so a lot of trying to bribe the cops and sneak things through and that kind of stuff? Absolutely. You got luggage cards, which are going to denote a number of sodas on them from zero to four. And there's a pull of bottle cap tokens in the middle of the table from which everyone starts with 10. So one player's going to start the game as the border guard. Think, not the sheriff, it's the border (laughs) guard. And they get border guard tokens according to the number of players in the game. We'll get there. Everybody else is a traveler, and these players are each going to get five cards. From these cards, they're going to pick two that they want to take across the border. So two luggage cases. One's got, say, three sodas in it, and one's got two. And then they're going to pick one more card that they use as a bribe, and they put it in front of them. At the same time, all of the travelers will flip up their bribe cards. So looking around the table, your border guard is going to say, okay, he's got a big bribe. I bet he's got some stuff in those suitcases. This person has a zero for a bribe. Maybe they're not taking anything across the border. Now, you're allowed to have one bottle of soda in your cases that you're smuggling. That's okay. We'll call this a a limited soda prohibition. Here's where the border guard gets to use their tokens that I talked about. First, you have to choose whether or not you're going to accept one of the bribes that's out there. And all this means that you see someone has a bribe of, say, two sodas and you want them. Sure, they're probably carrying a bunch of smuggled soda in their two hidden cases, but you want those two that they're offering. So you accept their bribe. You pass that token over to them. They give you two caps. And the goal of the game is to collect caps. Next, the border guard can inspect a suitcase. This means simply looking at one face-down suitcase to see what's in it. And then lastly, the border guard can make an arrest. The targeted traveler is going to reveal both of their luggage cards, and if they're carrying more than just one soda, they're arrested and they get nothing. But if they have one, or even zero, in their two hidden cases, then the border guard's going to give them one of their own bottle caps as an apology for the undo arrest. The border guard token shifts to the next player, and the next round begins. Play continues until everyone has been the border guard twice, and then the player who has the most bottle caps wins the game. This sounds like a a rather family-friendly type of game. What age group do you think this really works for? Oh, geez, this could work for eight and up. I mean, it's it's really simple. This is a fun little game. The obvious comparison, of course, being Sheriff of Nottingham. This is similar, but different. Namely, in that it plays a bit faster. You don't have varied scoring based on the goods that you're smuggling. You know how in Sheriff, there were certain goods were worth a little bit mm-hmm. more. And then you had the illegal, like those, the contraband or whatever it was that were worth big points. This is simply a numbers game. How many sodas did you get to smuggle? So it plays a little bit quicker that way. It's a little bit easier for, we'll say, a casual gamer. And I think that you could probably get eight years old, nine years Ooh. old. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna grasp this. Would this be an in-law-approved game? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. The only issue that I could see running into is you can't, like, (laughs) 
<laughs> I can envision a world where I arrest my mother-in-law <laughs> and I don't get invited back over for dinner. <laughs> well, you I haven't think been to our game nights with the, my in-laws then. It's not super strategic. Like you can't go into it and say, okay, I'm going to play a really solid plan tonight and I think I can win. A lot of it is based on like, okay, what did you happen to peek at with your inspect token? Uh, did you happen to put out a big enough bribe? Did somebody see your two bottles and go, and no, I bet I can arrest this person and keep them from getting six bottles across the border. Uh, so there is a lot of not randomness, but randomness of people. There's a human element of not knowing what might happen next. It's simple enough to, to learn. It's, it's approachable and it's satisfying. This one's an in-law approved game. Not to steal your seal of approval there. Hey, it's, it's welcome for anyone to use. <laughs> Boba Majong, I'm not familiar with. Is he another bounty hunter on the Mandalorian, or who it is It has he? nothing to do with Star Wars. Oh, right. Folks, we okay. are working on our transitions. That was that was reasonable. I like that. <laughs> so, well, what listeners don't Majong. know is that we have to delete probably 15 of our attempted transitions before we come up with one. So what you're hearing is what we thought, okay, that'll work. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but Boba Majong, what's that? I'm really kind of puzzled on that. Yeah, Boba Majong. Boba, like the T. I, oh, I don't know. I'm not a tea person. Uh, Boba Mahjong, this is designed by Tate Wu. This is going to be in Kickstarter. I believe the launch date is August 23rd. This is a two-player card game that is ridiculously easy to learn and teach. Scott, oh. it's so easy, in fact, that I think I can practically teach this with audio. So you have a deck. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hold it up to you to show. You have a deck of five suits. These are uh, tees or toppings, and the suits have cards ranging from one to eight. All you do, shuffle the deck and make three face-up stacks in the table. Those are the ingredients from which people can choose cards. Mm -hmm. On your turn, you either draw two cards blind from the deck or one of those ingredients from the top of one of the three piles. And then you're going to make a set, and that's simply three of a kind, a three-card straight, or any three toppings. Now, from your set of three, and this is where the game comes in, you're going to keep one of those cards. So let's suppose that I kept a three of a kind. I have three fives. You're going to select one of those fives, and that's going to become a score card. The other two fives, you're going to discard them into the middle three stacks, however you choose. One on this mm -hmm. stack, one on that stack, or both of them on this one. You get it. Once a player's created five sets, the round is over. Now, that scoring card that you set aside from each of the sets that you made, here's where it gets interesting. You're going to score your round based on the cards that you kept as your scorecard. So you have a, a very simple little end-of-round scoring reminder, and it's going to go over the ways that you score points based on those cards that you kept. Your T's freshness. These are cards of the same number. Smoothness is how many cards of a straight that you got. Complexity scores the toppings that you kept. Presentation scores all cards of the same color and cards of different colors. So as you can imagine, scoring is going to go up exponentially for each category. Tally up your points, and this is magic right here, for each increment of five rounded down, you get a scoring cube. Oh. Then you move on to the next round, and the game ends when somebody has collected six scoring cubes. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's got that small footprint. It's got that quick play time. But you know what? This is a classic case of easy to learn and hard to master. Uh, the mm. first few times that I was playing, I was focused on just getting sets. I wanted to make sets, but that's not the goal here. The goal is to complete sets that contain a card that you want to keep for your end-of-round scoring. 
it sounds like that's a bit of a tricky thing to do, though. It can get very tricky, but in time, you're going to be able to suss out what you need. You know, what should I be keeping? The problem is your opponent is doing the same thing. So you have to keep a close eye on what scoring cards your opponent has versus what you have. I can go six rounds into the game and not have made a set on purpose because I'm trying to get a certain type of set that's going to score me all kinds of points. Or if the scoring cards that I've kept are all the same color and they happen to be a one, a two, a three... A four. Holy crap. Pat's looking to get a five card straight. That's a whole bunch of points. So what do you do as my opponent? You try and rush the end. Mm-hmm. You try and get your fifth set down so that I ran out of time to, to get the end, to, to get my big five card straight. I had to settle for four. So you start looking at what the opponent has. There's a timing element. So if someone's slow rolling their turns and they're not playing sets because they're looking for a specific couple of cards, it does behoove you to rush the end of the round, regardless of what you're going to score. And I love when a game introduces that sort of timing element that's completely dependent on the players. It introduces a level of skill and strategy that you're not going to find in the rule book. Uh, on the surface, games with this element don't show it. It just arises after several plays. After players have become more comfortable with the strategic elements of the game, then they start to play each other. And oh, Boba Mashonk does that. This thing, this thing's a banger for a, a two-player quick game. There's a lot of game in this little deck of cards. That's awesome. I love those tiny little games that really give you a great experience. So I'm gonna have to keep my eyes open for that adventure on the horizon of Boba Mashonk. We're playing this next week, Thursday. You're gonna be at SCG. You said you're super busy. Monday, the following Monday. Yes. You know what? I am bringing this to the Renaissance Festival. (laughs) I'm going to get some mutton, and we're going to play some Boba Majong. All right. That sounds like a plan then. Well, Patrick, you said something about there were going to be some games for people to win. What's up with that? No, it's our two adventures on the horizon, Boba Majong, as well as Reiner Kenichi's Soda Smugglers. These we're going to give away now. Fantastic. You'll remember some 10 episodes ago, we did the poll about what do people want in a board game podcast. And one of the things they didn't want was contests and whatnot. So we're not going to go into this all crazy. All you got to do, join our guild on Board Game Geek. It's guild 3722. We're going to choose one guild member for each of these games on August 25th. We're going to announce who won the game on the 26th. And hey, even if you don't win, we're going to give you 10 geek gold just for joining the guild. So you can get your level up micro badge. That's a can't lose situation right there. Now, I should clarify, a micro badge, it's kind of like whenever you go to Fridays or you go to Applebee's and they have all those pieces of flair on their suspenders. Well, like Brian, for example, has 37 pieces of flair on today, okay? A terrific smile. Okay, so you you want me to wear more? Showing their personalities. (laughs) Well, this is your little piece of flair you can put on Board Game Geek saying, hey, I listen to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, and you can get your own little Wilford to put right underneath your name on Board Game Geek. And hey, if you're already in the guild, that's fine too. We are going to be part of this contest. The only rule that we have here is that we do have to keep this in the United States. Shipping is a bear, and we're sorry. Yes. Hey, Scott, before we get on with leveling up, I wanted to invite adventurers to next week's special side quest. We normally don't know what we're going to have ahead of time with a side quest. It just kind of happens and we throw it out there. But this one we actually already have recorded, so we know that we're going to have it next Thursday in between the regularly scheduled episodes. Editor's note, for those that are just now joining with us, (laughs) a side quest is a quest of a game that does not fit into the normal continuity of a regularly scheduled show. 
This may be an interview with a designer or talk about an upcoming Kickstarter. Editor out. You remember we played Zaya? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I remember playing Zaya. That was a great time. <laughs> Savvy old news hounds we are. We landed an interview with Cody Miller about Aridia live on Kickstarter now for a few more weeks. We're going to give you the episode next week. I mean, I'm geeking out, man. Uh, we don't always know ahead of time when we have a side quest coming up, but this one is already recorded, ready to go. Make sure, adventures you don't miss next week. Aridia, The Paths We Dare Tread with designer Cody Miller. That is fantastic, and I can't wait to share that with all the listeners. It's going to be amazing. All right, Scott. I, I know you're tired. We keep pushing for it. Let's get to the end of episode 25. We're going to end this one the way that we always do. Scott, how did you level up since we last spoke? Well, I was going to say something about how I stopped and I helped a couple move some furniture. Just absolute strangers. Just helped them out moving some stuff. But then I thought, Why would you no, do that? Because I'm that Did you expect guy. financial gain? Absolutely not. This level up isn't my level up. This is a level up to the woman who has spent 19 years with me in wedded bliss, my wife, Heather. So we celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary this past week. It has been an amazing 19 years, and I can't wait for more years to come with her. So, Heather, if you're listening, which you better be, <laughs> love you, and I'm so very happy to have you in my life. So that is my level up. Congratulations, Scott. Thank you. And how did you level up? Since my wife works on the road, I've been spending a lot of time with my daughter, as you can imagine. And my neighbor travels for work as well, but he has a pool. And he said, do you mind watching after the pool while I'm gone? Yeah, absolutely. You let us Ooh. swim in there all the time. Sarah doesn't need floaties to swim anymore. Oh, that's fantastic. We got a swimmer. Yes, now, the level up for me, I think I was griping you over the phone. I have not beaten Carnegie solo. Right. Uh, just playing the solo mode and training on BGA, I think I've played it 20 times. I, I haven't won a game Oof. until yesterday. I beat oh. solo Carnegie. It took forever. I honestly think they need to calibrate their solo mode because it is hard. And I found out after a while that I was actually playing it on easy mode and I was still losing. I finally <laughs> beat it and I beat it by one point. So that is my level up. And that one point was oh, oh, so sweet. Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.